You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Turn in your copy of God's Word then to John 7, 1 through 36. We're just uh, uh, turning over another chapter in John's Gospel as we go taking this first section of John and asking really those same questions that uh, uh, John has put before us throughout it all. What am I to believe about Jesus and uh, how can I have life in His names? And uh, maybe you've picked up on this in our journey through uh, this gospel is that, uh, 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 that we're coming to realize that Jesus is on a specific mission, is he not? He's not playing around here. He has a purpose that he has been sent for, and he is on this uh, mission. And as he's teaching about it, he's really, the intensity is increasing as Jesus is dialing it in, as he's becoming more pointed and specific in what he is saying. And the opposition from his Jewish enemies is, is really rising as they, as they close in on him. They're, they're upset and crowding the plate like a, like a batter in, in baseball, I'm mad about the pitches that are coming their way. Do we have any baseball fans this morning? Some of you all? Most of you, maybe if you do, you root for the, that team over in Houston. What, is, what are they called again? Yeah, they had, they've had some success lately. I'm a Brewers fan growing up in Wisconsin and all that. And, and, and here, like in our text, like Jesus is throwing some pitches that these guys are having trouble hitting. He's in the big leagues, and the, 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 his Jewish enemies are really still back in, in, in Little League. And, and they're standing at the plate just trying to swing, and it's not going so well. Now, it, maybe you're thinking, like, batting's not really that hard, is it? It's actually much harder than it looks. Maybe you watch the game, you're like, I could totally do that. But let me uh, assure you, like, when a 95-mile-an-hour fastball is coming at you, you get about that quick to swing at it, don't you? I mean, it, it, what is going on? It's harder than it looks. It, it requires some timing skills. All right, as you stand up to the plate, if you swing too early, too late, it, well, if, you, you may look like uh, 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 silly as you spin around, but you're likely to pull the ball one way or another. It requires good skill and timing, but it also requires good judgment skills or discernment as you watch the ball leave the pitcher's hand and how the, the ball is rotating and, and, and its movement through the air. It takes some judgment to understand, okay, what type of pitch is this and can I expect uh, it to, uh, to move in a certain way, but also requires some directional ability. Locate the ball. Where is this as it's coming across the plate? Is it high, low, inside, outside, or right down the middle or somewhere in between all of that? And so it takes all of these skills, and again, you have about that quick to make these decisions. And in many ways, Jesus is uh, throwing in our text today these pitches, and he is uh, requiring some of these same skills from the batters, and they're just having a difficult time trying to hit the ball. Because he's, again, bringing us back to this fundamental question here in the text. But the question that we've been asking all along the way, is Jesus the real deal? Is, is Jesus the real deal and is what he's saying uh, that, that, this, that we need saving and that he is the solution? Is he really true? And so come to the text. Let's step up to the plate and let's read it here for us this morning. 
Let's read it. I'm going to read it. You follow along. And let's see what we're getting at. John 7, beginning in verse 1, says this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? A crowd answered him, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now this is God's word for God's people. 
An interesting text as Jesus, again, uh, begins to unearth their misunderstandings, the problems that they had, and to show how uh, he is the one who fulfills all these things. That's why after reading the text, I think we can conclude this, that Jesus is the real deal sent to expose our problem and rescue us from it. Write that down for it is the central conclusion of this uh, text that Jesus is teaching on here, that Jesus is the real deal sent from God to expose our problem and rescue us from it. Now, as you write this down, is it safe to say that the Jews hate Jesus? I mean, as we are in this text, as we're working our way through, and, and let me just uh, be clear so we're understanding what the way John is using this here. Not that, it's not like the entire nation of Israel is, is hating uh, of Jesus, but John uses this particular term, the Jews, as Jesus' enemies. Those that, uh, uh, that are uh, in opposition uh, to him, they hate him for what he is teaching. They hate him for how he is dismantling their religious systems as he, as he goes. And now he's not just some mere revolutionary trying to overthrow the government and the religious institutions here. But he really is the real deal. He is the Messiah. And these three scenes, I think, back up this conclusion where, like I said, in similar fashion as we've seen along the way, particularly in his teaching portion in chapter 6, what Jesus is doing is unearthing a misunderstanding or unearthing a problem and then countering it with a truth about himself. He's exposing and then saying, here is, he's exposing the darkness and then showing the light about who he is. And so as we work through these scenes, we'll seek both the problem and then the solution found in Jesus. And so come back to the beginning of the chapter then, because here's the, the problem that Jesus unearths, is that their timing is off. That their, that their timing and the way that they think about God's timing and his purposes is entirely off. It says here that after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. What was this after this? Well, it's really an unspecified uh, amount of time. After this, the things that are happening in, in uh, chapter 6, uh, there, there are these big blocks here in John as he's teaching. But, but remember this. I've said this along the way. John isn't necessarily teaching in sequential order or, or things, uh, the events that are happening immediately after. It's not like chapter 6 was likely not just a few days uh, before chapter 7. There's an unspecified amount of, uh, of time that he was there in Galilee where uh, much of his ministry happened, but he does not want to go to Judea, the region around Jerusalem. Why? Because he, they were seeking to kill him. We remember that they're still hot and bothered by what we read about in chapter five when he healed the, the man on the Sabbath next to the, the pool. But now we learn it's this season, this time of the year in the fall when the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles is upon them. And, and many of you maybe are unfamiliar with what this is, but it's so important for our understanding not only of today's passage, but of the next several chapters, 7, seven 8, 9, and 10, are all kind of revolving around this. And so even though it's just kind of like dropped in here, because the early readers would have understand, oh, the Feast of Booze. We need to also understand what this is all about. It's like a, a massive festival, a week-long uh, festival, actually. would think of like Woodstock, but for religious purposes. Or in more spiritual ways, th- think of it like our church anniversary. 
And we celebrate every fall where we remember back to God's faithfulness when we were a mobile church setting up and, and uh, tearing down and, and uh, all that went into a Sunday morning. And so we celebrate that in uh, October on our uh, church launch on October 1st. But uh, think about it in, in a much grander scheme, like we all gathered for the whole week uh, and brought our tents and all of our camping gear and camped out in the parking lot and uh, just had a grand old time for uh, seven or eight days. Now, if some of you are like, let's do it next year, right? No, you're not about that, are you? Like, that'd be miserable, huh? We'd all be bringing our mattresses and things because sleeping out there on that asphalt would not be pleasant. But let's just understand this. I think it's going to, I want us to just get in our mind what is actually happening here and where this comes from. So go back to Leviticus 23 uh, for just a moment. You may remember that when we worked our way through uh, the book of Leviticus last fall, it's up in the early uh, parts of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then in Leviticus uh, 23, you have uh, uh, all these feasts and or festivals of the Lord that God had given the people of Israel as they were forming this nation that served as reminders of the glorious things God had done in Israel's past. And so this particular one called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, think of booth or tabernacle like tent, like have that in your mind, not like a booth at like the mall or something where they're selling something, but uh, of like a, a, a tent that was to remind them of their time in the wilderness after God delivered Israel from Egypt and their slavery there. And so Leviticus 23, pick it up in verse 23. And let me just read this so we can see it. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, on the 15th day of this seventh month and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. Okay, so he gives them the exact timing, seven months. So that's, you know, roughly the, uh, the Hebrew calendar is different than our, our, our calendar today. But it's, you know, right around the first of October, end of September, first part of October, when this uh, generally falls. And it's a whole uh, seven day feast on the First day you shall be, or shall be a holy convocation, and you shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord, and on the eighth day and you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall do no ordinary work. And so here it is, a whole week-long thing with a daily uh, festival and offerings and things being brought to the Lord uh, and no work, like a week-long vacation happening. And this also happening at the end of the harvest season where they would be celebrating God's provision and bringing these sacrifices, those things that, remember, told the Lord, thank you for his provision and other offerings that were brought to the Lord to tell the Lord, hey, I am sorry, I repent of my sin. And so they would do this. Now pick it up in verse 39. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest, and you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made 
the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so note this, like note the, the specificity in which the timing and who's to participate and, and when they were uh, supposed to and what they were supposed to, to dwell in here as this reminder of God's provision for them in the wilderness and as a, a remembrance of thanksgiving for God delivering them out of uh, this Egyptian slavery through that. And now this is going on in some 1200 or so-ish years since when God gave that and did that. Now to the time of Jesus, they are still following this uh, festival, at least to some measure. And this is what is happening there in Jerusalem. So just about all of Israel, at least for those that uh, were in the vicinity, would descend upon uh, Jerusalem for this week and daily rituals and lots of celebration. Now, to help us even understand what it was like in Jesus' day, let me also just read for us uh, just a, a portion from Kent Hughes' commentary to give just a little bit of color because this is so important for us to understand not only this passage, like I said, but the next several chapters in John. Listen to what he says here as I read this quote. During the feast, great throngs came to town. It was a colorful event. Shelters sprang up in the most unlikely places, on flat rooftops, down dark alleys, even in the courts of the temple. And all the shelters followed the rabbinical building code. The walls were extra thin so that light came through, and the roof had to show enough sky so the stars could be seen, thus reminding the Jews of how they had wandered in the wilderness and of how God had provided for them. Now, end quote for just a moment. That, like, you know, no privacy, all the light, bad weather guess they're just out in the open, right? But pick it up again. The feast was a wonderful and festive time. People dressed in their Sabbath best for the week. They called it the season of our gladness. It was so festive that to Zechariah, it was a symbol of the glorious future of the people of God. In the 14th chapter of Zechariah, he wrote of that golden age to come and of a future universal feast of tabernacles. But at the heart of the celebration was a daily rite, a right we must understand in order to catch the sense of John 7. Rabbinical literature tells us that each morning, great multitudes would gather at the temple of Herod. They would come with a citrus fruit in their left hands, an ethrog, right? The fruit from a splendid tree, as we saw in Leviticus. The ethrog was a reminder of the land to which God had brought them and of their bountiful blessings. But in their right hands, the people would carry a lulub, which was a combination of three trees, a palm tree, a willow tree, and a myrtle tree emblematic of the stages of their ancestors' journey through the wilderness. Each morning, the people gathered together, and after the priest was sure everything was in order, he would hold out a golden pitcher. Crowds would then follow the priest to the Pool of Siloam, which just mark that in your memory because it's going to come back up in chapter 9. And they would come, the priest, to the Pool of Siloam, chanting some of the great psalms and waving their lulubs in rhythm. As they approached the pool of Siloam, the priest would dip his pitcher into the water and the people would recite some beautiful words from Isaiah 12:3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Then the crowd would march back to the temple, entering through the water gate to the blast of the priest's trumpet. The priest would then circle the altar once, ascend with accompanying priest to the platform, platform and pour the water out. And this was a daily event. Now, end quote. 
Why do I read all of that? Because this is the situation. This is the party and the celebration happening there in, uh, in Jerusalem. The, the, all these Jewish people are now gathered and there's a sense of, a, of, of a festivity and celebration at this as everybody is packed into Jerusalem. And now as you come back to John chapter 7 and understand the context here, Jesus is in Galilee. His brothers, like his family, brothers, and maybe even his sisters are there with him. And they're saying, hey, it's our time. Let's go jump in on the celebration in Jerusalem at this Feast of Booze. And they are urging Jesus to go and take the crowd by storm. Do you see that? You kind of get the sense now of where they're going. The Feast of Booze is at hand. Come back to the sex. You see this verse 3. They're like, leave here. Go to Judea. You're doing all these miracles. We see it. If you really want to take the world by storm, this is how you can do it. Go, let's, let's, let's go. Do, just imagine the followers you get. You will be an overnight sensation if you start doing some of the miracles that you did out here in the wilderness with nobody watching. If you do this in Jerusalem, man, just imagine. Apparently his family had jumped on this. Uh, the, the Jesus is a revolutionary train. That he was there to liberate them from the Roman occupation. And so follow their line of reasoning. Because what have we seen in the previous chapters? That Jesus has just proven that he is greater than Moses. Now what are they celebrating at the Feast of Booths? Moses' deliverance of Israel from their slavery. He's like, now you're greater than Moses. If Moses can do that, what a better time to now as we're celebrating this to show and deliver these people out. Strike while the iron is hot. Now is your time to shine, Jesus. And yet, we have this little parenthetical in verse 5, or it's no parentheses, but even as they're urging him, we learn that his brothers had not yet believed in him. They were seeing the opportunity through their cultural lenses here, but not realizing that Jesus' deliverance was from a far greater enemy and so in verse 6 what does Jesus do he drops the time bomb a time bomb that we've seen along the way in uh, well we've seen it once so far in uh, in John chapter 2 at the uh, miracle in Cana he says my time has not yet come and now it's uh, we see it again and it will actually be repeated multiple times in the coming chapters here and this word is really loaded with meaning time or hour it's it's really more a meaning of opportunity it's his time to shine the time is right here uh, to go and Jesus says no the opportunity is not right it is not my time to uh, shine it's not my time to go it's your time to go to the feast but not for Jesus he has a bigger purpose in mind he can't go yet and so he waits a few days, and then, and, and then he seems to sneak in. Do you see it there? After he remains in Jerusalem, they go. His time has not yet come. His brothers go, and then he goes incognito while everyone, we learn, is like muttering there in verse 12. Or grumbling. It's actually the same word there. I don't like the ESV, how they, they put muttering here, because it's, it's actually grumbling that we saw in chapter 6, and it comes up again. They're all still grumbling about Jesus' teaching. There you go. This is a good man. No, he's not. He's deceitful, all this, but no one's just speaking out and open. They're too coward to, uh, to say anything here. But time out for a second. In this whole scene, as we take it in, does Jesus lie to his brothers? Or, you know, at least misleading him. What do you think? 
No. Why do we say that? That's right. I mean, our theology says Jesus doesn't lie, right? We have it like in the Bible, God who does not lie in Titus, right? Titus 1. And so that's, this is just true. It's good theology here. But he's not leading them astray. He's not lying to them. He just isn't going on their terms. They want him to go and take the world by storm. Jesus is like, no, I'm not going. My time's not coming. They want to kill me. I will go in my own time here. And just this, like Jesus is, is pointing out to Master, I didn't come to do the miracles. I didn't come to just feed people. I didn't come to lead a revolt. I've come to teach. I've come to show the way of salvation. The miracles just authenticate the message and show that he is who he says he is. And they want him to go on their time according to their judgment. And Jesus said, no, no, your timing is off. But here's what Jesus then proves about himself, how he counters this, is write this down. Jesus moves when the time is right, and he waits when the time is wrong. Jesus moves when the time is right, and he waits when the time is wrong. He carries out his will in his own perfect timing to accomplish his perfect purposes. He is moving at when, when, when the opportunity is right according to his timetable and not his brothers. Not the, the, the feeling that the, the rest of the, Israel, the Israelite nation would love for him to move. No, Jesus has his own will, his own timing, and he moves when his time is right, and he waits when the time is wrong. But they're getting antsy, and we, like the brothers, we get antsy sometimes too, don't we? We see things happening in our world. We see things happening in our own life. And we think, now's the opportunity. Now is the right time. And as we look through it from our perspective, our vantage point, or through a cultural lens here, we think, now, God, now would be a really great time to move. Now would be a really great time to have a a, a godly uh, president. Now would be a really great time. And all those things aren't necessarily wrong to ask. But we can always trust God's timing and God's purposes in the midst of it all. Even in our own life, as we think about the things that are happening, we, we, we try convincing the Lord, hey, Lord, now would be a really great time for that payday. Now would be a really great time for that promotion. I have these financial needs. There's an open opportunity in the company or in another company. And now, you know, God, I think this would be a really good time for that. We can try to convince the Lord, God, now would be a really great time for Prince Charming to come along. Now would be a really great time for that investment to fully mature so I can fully and finally retire and have the freedom to serve you more. Now, now would be a really great time, Lord, for this pregnancy test to show something other than negative. Now would be a really great time for this to happen in my work or this to happen in my home or you name it. And it's not wrong to ask of the Lord, but it is wrong to demand it is wrong to, to, to insist that the Lord moves according to our expectations or according to our perspective and to miss that God may be doing something so much bigger in our life. That from our vantage point, it may seem like now is the time, Jesus, to lead these people out of Israel and out from under Roman occupation. And yet Jesus is saying, hey, hey, hold on. Hold on. He's not moving because the time isn't right. He's got something bigger. Sorry, he's waiting. 
He's waiting for the right time. And we too have to wait on the Lord as he's not moving. That doesn't mean he's inactive or forgotten or apathetic to your uh, spot. But he is calling us to wait. And waiting itself is not inactivity. Waiting is just simply expecting God to do what only he can do. While we ourselves remain faithful to what he has called us to do. That's what, that's what, that's what waiting is. Let me just, let me just say that again. Because maybe it's, uh, that's muddled in our, in our own mind. What Waiting on the Lord in this biblical command that we see all across the pages of scripture. That I waited patiently on the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. Psalm 42 says, but waiting on God is just expecting God to do what only he can do while being faithful to do what he has told us to do. And I get it. This is hard. It's hard in the moments, hard to hear, hard to do, hard to remember and to believe that God's timing is perfect. When we have our expectations or we have our needs or we have our desires, But see, even in this, where we recognize maybe our timing is off, there's a second problem that he unearths, that our judgment is skewed. Our judgment is is skewed. He throws another pitch here. This one here in the middle of the, uh, of the feast to uh, show that our, our judgment or our discernment is off. And so how long was the feast, church, as we just read it? Seven days with an eighth day final convocation. So here in verse 14, about the middle of the feast, so somewhere around that fourth day as all those rituals and things were happening, Jesus now goes straight to the temple and he begins teaching, right? And and we're not told exactly what he is teaching there, but what we do is get their reaction in verse 15 as they try to discredit him and dismiss him uh, because he doesn't have the degrees or pedigrees or the references to speak as powerfully or poignantly as he is, right? They're marveled, like, how does this man have learning? He's never studied anything. He didn't go to our synagogues. He didn't learn uh, from our our, our rabbinical uh, teachers and, and, and gurus. And then try to dismiss it. And he's, you know, I mean, we're not unlike this, right? We get enamored with degrees and schools and titles and in uh, those who lead us and in the church and all that stuff. And it's not that those things are necessarily wrong, but they're trying to discredit him because they're not in line with theirs. And church, where is our authority? Our authority ultimately lies in the scriptures, not in an institution, not in a person, not in anybody else or some theological paradigm or uh, history. Our, our authority comes from the scriptures, from the word of God, and which is really what Jesus is like bringing them back to. He doesn't even defend himself. He's like, oh, you're right, you know, or no, I actually did learn from this. He doesn't, he doesn't even go in that because in his response, even as he's unearthing that their judgment is skewed, he then also takes it as a teachable moment so that we know how, to, how, do we, how can we know that anybody's teaching is from the Lord? How do we know who's teaching that we should follow? And he gives, he gives kind of two, uh, uh, or two lenses or two filters anyways for us to think through of any sort of teaching. Do you see it here? You want to know somebody's teaching from, is from God? Jesus answered in verse 16. Well, first, does their teaching give glory to God or to themselves? Is the teacher just trying to elevate their platform to get more influence? Are they patting themselves on the back? Or are they saying things where the, where the final authority is actually themselves, their experience or their words or their thinking? Or does it give glory to God? 
You see it there? When it speaks on his own authority, seeks his own glory. When it seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. He's speaking of himself. But second, the second filter gives is, does their life match their message? And so in verse 19, has not Moses given you the law that none of you keeps the law? You have the whole Old Testament. You have this, and yet he, he accuses them even of hypocrisy, right? They judge, their, their uh, discernment radar judges on degrees, on law-keeping, and even on appearances. Verse 24, do not judge on appearances, but judge with right judgment. That went bad for them. Think back to 1 Samuel when they're uh, appointing the first king and how does Saul get appointed? He was handsome. He was tall, right? That makes a great leader. No. The, he, he, he exposes this. Our judgment is skewed. Here's actually how we uh, make any sort of judgment on what somebody is teaching. So give glory to God. Does their life master their message or is their hypocrisy there? And they get pretty bent out of shape of this. Verse 20, right? They, they accuse him of having a demon. You're crazy, man. Nobody's wanting to kill you, right? You're just paranoid. So he just patiently, again, uses another example of, uh, to point out their hypocrisy, how their judgment is skewed. He's like, hey, guys, you have a law. You make allowances for uh, circumcision. If you know, a baby boy in their culture would be circumcised on the eighth day, and if that eighth day landed on a, on a Sabbath day, could they still circumcise him? Yep. He said, how is that any different than what I did at the pool in healing a whole man on the Sabbath day? See, it's all, all off. They're judging based on degrees, law-keeping, and appearances. And see, here's the truth as he exposes the problem, is that Jesus sets the standard for what is right and what is wrong. How he, how he just counters this. He's like, here, I'm the standard. Even as he's giving us a paradigm to think through these things, he's saying, here I am. I've set the standard of what is right, what is wrong, and they don't like it. They want to set the standard. They want to judge according to their standards. And yet he's just simply saying, I am God. God's word is law. He is, he, as a human, Jesus saying, my life is perfect, the perfect example. And so, church, by implication, this is super helpful for us, I think. You know, Jesus teaches us in this passage of who to follow. What type of people we want to uh, follow in our own lives, whether in the church or in our business or wherever it is, those who live a life of verticality and those who live a life of vulnerability. Those whose life is lived vertically to the glory of God and not like in a cheesy way, but whose teaching and whose word is anchored in the word of God and who keeps us focused on the glory of God. Who, who keep us uh, 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 just imagining and enamored with the greatness of God's Son. Those who live their lives vertically, but also who live them vulnerably, out in the open, unafraid of accountability, and when their life doesn't match up with their teaching, who readily admits their faults and humbly will seek forgiveness for the ways that they have hurt or failed another person. These are the type of people to follow. This is the type of teaching to follow. And though it's outside kind of the scope of Jesus' direct target here by implication, here I think it's, this, is, this is helpful for us. If you want to lead others, godly leaders have discernment. Godly leaders live lives vertically and, vertic- and vulnerably. Moms, this is true for you. On a day like Mother's Day uh, uh, today here, do you want to influence your kids? 
whether you're still holding them like this or they're towering over you now. If you want to have an influence in your kids, live a life, influence your children to the glory of God. Point their eyes vertical. Keep your counsel and your wisdom and your correction and your love and your support anchored in the word of God and pointing them to the greatness of the Son of God. Live your life vulnerably amongst them. Able and readily and humbly able to admit when you are, 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 have failed or when you've said something that, is, that, that has hurt them or where you have been unloving, this actually gains you esteem in their eyes. They can see it. There's no sense in pretending that we're perfect. But you will have an influence, a godly influence over your kids at any stage if you let your influence, moms, be over your kids, one that is vertical and vulnerable in all things to the glory of God. But as we come back to the text now, there's a third scene, a third pitch that comes, a third problem that gets unearthed here is that our directions are faulty. And this, we can just humbly admit this. Our timing is off, our judgment is skewed, and our directions are, are faulty. We have trouble locating the ball sometimes. Is this over the plate? Is this outside, inside, here? And, and, and this is really where the text turns to now. Their, their, their direction, they're all worried about, well, where is Jesus going? Where is he from? Where is he, where is he going? And, and notice how in verse 25 here, it refers to the people of Jerusalem, the people that are gathered there, a different designation for them. These aren't as enemies, but now the people of Jerusalem, and the people aren't stupid. They're trying to put the pieces together. They can hear Jesus teaching. They can also, they're observing the authorities' uh, 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 lack of response to the things that Jesus is saying. They're unconvincing arguments, and they begin to speculate, all right? Well, is this not the man he sent to kill? You speaking openly. They say, nothing. Can it be that this man is actually the Christ? And so now they're trying to fill in the blanks in these ways that are really uh, opposed to faith. They're, they're, they're speculating and they're super suspicious. Are the authorities hiding this? Why would they be hiding this? Well, maybe they know he's right and they don't want to look foolish. They don't want to lose their influence. They don't want to lose their, 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 their money. And so they're, 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 they're speculating. They're suspicious. These things, like I said, that are opposite to faith. We, uh, when we have gaps in our understanding or we don't know, then faith says, well, we should. Somebody's out to get us. And yet as we trust in the Lord, trust enables us to trust others to love others, and yet they are confused, have no answers. And so they're listening to what Jesus says, and yet even as they're listening, they're confused not only, they're not only speculating, but they're kind of confused about the, the, the direction, like, where did this guy come from, and where is where, he, he going? And there's, there's kind of two things at play here contributing to their confusion about uh, uh, they, they misunderstand where Jesus is from. They've heard his reputation that he is from Nazareth, Nazareth, and we'll learn actually later in chapter 7, they know that the Messiah was to come from Bethlehem. They knew that, that prophecy, and they apparently didn't know that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, even though he was raised in Nazareth. And so they're confused about this, but they also have a, a prophetic misunderstanding and a confusion about the uh, Old Testament prophecies about the imminence of how the Messiah would come. 
And so what's likely happening here is they're misunderstanding uh, prophecies like Malachi 3.1 that speak of the suddenness or the imminence of the Messiah's uh, return here as to, uh, to that meaning that we wouldn't know where he came from. That he would appear out of nowhere. And they're like, no, he didn't appear out of nowhere. We've seen, we know the path he took to walk here, all this. And, and so they're, they're confused. They're reading too much into these prophecies. And even that's just like great implication for us, right? This should cause us to pause in our own prophetic conclusions. It's not wrong to have them. It's not wrong to believe them and to search these things out. But let's be cautious lest we miss it altogether. <laughs> The, the, the Jewish people here miss his first coming. He's standing right there in front of him, and we would hate to be guilty of the same thing at Jesus' second coming. But they're all confused. They're all speculating. You can just imagine kind of the clamor that's happening because then you get to verse 28 in the midst of all this, and even though it's, it's, it's kind of softened in this word here, so Jesus proclaims, it's like, you know, you just imagine the confusion, the chaos, all the people, they're muttering, they're grumbling about these things, and now Jesus comes in and proclaims, he cries out, he shouts this, uh, this, this reality in the midst of it, of it all, I have been sent by God to save you. They're, they're debating all of these things. Their directions are all off. They're worried about this. And Jesus just very simply in those verses there, if we were to boil it down, he's just saying, I have been sent by God to save you. Let's be very clear in the middle of it all. He reiterates the gospel that he has been preaching on repeat for multiple chapters. Now, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God in his great mercy sent his son to save us. The one who would come and live a perfect life, the life that we couldn't live and who would die the death that we deserve to die because of our sin and would rise again, defeating death, the death that was our punishment. He has been sent by God to save us. And that's what he's getting at. And thankfully, we learn in verse 31, many of the people believe. Maybe you're in here this morning. There's all kinds of things being said and all the, you're like feast of booze, pitchers, baseball, dirt on everything. Like what in the world are we talking about? Don't miss this simple gospel truth that is so simple and yet so significant because your belief that God sent his son, Jesus, to save you has eternal significance. By repenting and believing in him, you will have eternal life. And that may be all confusing and there may be all kinds of implications of what that means and how your life is going to change and what you can't do anymore and what you're supposed to do. Now, as we go forward, we get that and we'll walk with you. But today, today, just let that simple truth take hold of your heart as you repent of your sins and say, God, I'm tired of doing this on my own. I'm going to walk in you. It's a truth that will change your life. It's a truth that also made a whole lot of people mad. She told you, you can't do it. Your works are evil. That's why they want to arrest him, right? Verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come, right? Like note that like Jesus is in complete control. He knows exactly what's happening in all of this. Like he is invincible until his time comes. They will not lay a hand on him until he allows them to. Now that's not going to come for several more chapters here. And yet, 
Here he is. They're trying to arrest him. Verse 32, also the Pharisees hear the crowd grumbling, muttering these things about him. Chief priests, they sent officers to arrest him. But then Jesus kind of flips the script on them again. They're all worried about where he's, uh, uh, where he's going and where he's coming from. And Jesus is like, hey, here's the truth about me. I come and go where only God can go. You're just like, you're worried about, you're confused about all these things, but Jesus comes and goes where only God can go. He came from heaven. He's going back there. They're still confused about it, but he's like, I've come and I'm going back there and I'm going to take as many of you as possible as I can. And yet they're still confused. They're misunderstanding. Their directions are all off. The Jews think like, well, what's he going to do? He's not okay. He's not here. He's going to go to the dispersion. All these Jewish people that were spread around the Greco-Roman Empire. Oh, he's going to go preach to them and try to raise them up in a revolt, right? The Jewish people there, they want him to stay. No, like, no, you need to, you can't go. You have to stay and lead us out of this Roman occupation. Now he's leaving. He's like, no, we were, we want to be with you to take over the world. And Jesus is like, I'm not here to take over the world at this point. I'm here to save my sheep. He is the creator of the world. He already has control over the entire universe. We, like them, often want government leaders to alleviate the pressures of life. And yet our directions are faulty. Our source of a change and transformation are misplaced. They're going somewhere uh, that, uh, that won't provide the relief that we desire. That will only happen when Jesus returns. So we keep trust in the Lord. It's not wrong to, to, to want these things, to want justice, to want a, a, this a type of you know, change in our culture. But what have we seen along the way? Jesus is going to do it in his timing, according to his way, according to his standards, and in place that he says. And here they're all confused about the physical. They're all like honed in the physical. Like, where's he going? No, it's, no, no, no. Jesus is like, no, I have something bigger. I have something spiritual that I am doing. I've come from heaven. I'm going to return there, and I'm going to take my people, those who believe with me. And so Jesus is like throwing these pitches, and they're, they're, his Jewish enemies are swinging and missing. There's like one strike, two strike, three strike. And it's making them all mad while they're doing it, right? They're, they're staring down the pitcher. They're cussing out the umpire. They're mad at it all. But what have we seen, church, in this text? Jesus is the real deal. Proven to us in each scene over and over again. His timing, perfect. His teaching, the standard. The only question remains, will we believe it and have life in his name or not? Pray with me now as we close. God in heaven, thank you for this text. Thank you just for the layers of understanding, the, uh, uh, just uh, getting to explore some of the, the depths of your word. But we just begin, God, by confessing we need your help. That we too, our, our timing is off, our judgment is, is skewed, our, our directions are all misplaced and faulty. We're seeing things from our limited perspective, and so we need your help, your grace, your mercy in this. And so God, the, the, the glorious thing is that you give it to us. And so we praise, praise you for it. That as you save us and give us your spirit, you help us to see in a way that is different. You transform us by the renewing of our mind. And so would you do that even now, God? As we pray, as we sing, 
to exalt you, Jesus, as the one whose timing is perfect, whose teaching is the standard, whose mission is undeniable. Thank you, Christ. We worship you in Christ's name. Amen.